Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. Father, we pray for your help now. Pray that by your Holy Spirit we would understand your word, that I would explain it clearly and preach it powerfully, and that our hearts would receive it joyfully. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in verse 2, Jesus had spoken to the disciples as follows. You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And now when we come to verse 17, the two days have passed and the Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, verse 17, has arrived. And before the night is out, Jesus will be, as he said, handed over for crucifixion. But before he is, he must eat the Passover with his disciples, and he must communicate some very important things to them. And he must also communicate with his father as well, which we will see in the next passage. And as we look tonight at the preparation for 
the Passover supper. And as we think about the meal itself, and as we listen in on what was spoken during and after that first Lord's Supper, I want us to zero in this evening on the people involved here. I want us to zero in, first of all, on the disciples, and then secondly, on Judas, in particular, one of the disciples, and then third, to focus our attention on Jesus himself. So that's the way we're going to divide up our time tonight. We're going to consider the disciples in this passage, and then Judas in particular, and then Jesus himself. And we begin with the disciples. What do we see of them in this text tonight? Well, it's interesting that the glimpse that we get of the disciples in this passage gives us very two very different aspects of them, two very different aspects of these followers of Jesus. First of all, in verses 17 through 19, we see their faithfulness, their faithfulness. They are ready to serve, verse 17. Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And then in verse 18, Jesus gives them instructions. And in verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And at the end of verse 19, then they actually do prepare the Passover. It's a beautiful portrait here of faithful men who want to serve and who actually do serve, and who follow Jesus' directions in the way that they serve. And this is how we want to be, I hope, as followers of Jesus as well. Lord, how can I serve you? Okay, Lord, now that you've told me how I can serve you, let me do it, and let me do it in exactly the way that you tell me to do it. It's beautiful here. It's a model of faithfulness that we see in these Men, we see their faithfulness here. But then in verses 31 and 35, at the end of our passage, we're reminded also of their frailty. Their frailty. Because Jesus tells them in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. And soon they do fall away. And Jesus says specifically of Peter in verse 34, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter does so. And so we're reminded here in this advance notice that Jesus gives of the disciples' frailty, of their fragility, of their weakness. These men very soon are going to crumble. And oh, how easily we sometimes crumble too. How easily we sometimes waffle on the truth when we're confronted with someone who doesn't like what the Bible says about a certain thing. How easily we give in to lust when we're presented with opportunities for it. How easily... We fall in, some of us, to despair when our circumstances seem bleak. I'm reminded of the story of Katie Luther, Martin Luther's wife, 
who one day uh, was walking around as though she were going to a funeral dressed in black. And her husband, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said to her, well, Katie, who died? And she said, well, the way you've been moping around, uh, it seems like God must have died because you're acting like he's not alive and well to help us. So that someone even as mighty in the Lord as Martin Luther was frail, prone to despair, and we are as well. The disciples of Jesus in Matthew 26 and the disciples of Jesus today are frail. And notice that one aspect of their frailty in verses 33 through 35 One aspect of their frailty, to quote Paris Reedhead from another context, was that they didn't have the good grace to see it. Look at this in verses 33 and and following. Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. They're overconfident in themselves here, aren't they? And we can be like that, too, can't we? We can see other Christians giving in to despair and say, well, I would never think of doing something like that. We can watch other Christians or or hear of other Christians falling into great sexual sin and say, well, I would never fall that hard. I can't believe anybody would do that. We can see Christian leaders, maybe on television, equivocating when someone puts them on the spot with some unpopular truth in the Bible and they waffle on it and they wobble a little bit and we can watch them on the TV screen and say, well, I would never waffle like that. Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Beware of that kind of overconfidence. Beware of that kind of bravado. Now, I'm not condoning despair or sexual sin or equivocation or any other sin that Christians may fall into any more than we condone Peter's denials or the disciples' cowardice when they abandoned their Lord. I'm simply saying that like the disciples, we are weaker than we may think. Like the disciples, we are more frail than we would probably like to believe. And I'm also saying that we ought not add to our frailty, our weakness, by walking around with a foolhardy bravado that thinks that we actually are pretty strong. That's a good way to fall. That's a weakness. One aspect of the disciples' frailty was that they didn't recognize in verses 33 through 35 just how frail they were. And yet, to be fair to them, we should point out earlier in this passage 
When Jesus introduced the topic of his betrayal in verse 21, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, we should point out, to be fair to them, that on that occasion they did not seem to be overconfident, they did not seem to be boastful, but rather we're told that they were grieved. Verse 22, deeply so. And the fact that we're told that they were grieved when the Lord said that one of them would betray him means that I take their question in verse 22, surely not I, Lord, as a recognition that, a recognition at least in this instance, that they could stumble. I don't think the tone in verse 22 is a proud, dismissive tone truly i say to you that one of you will betray me surely not i lord i mean surely you're not talking about me i don't think that's the tone i think the tone is rather a humble concerned i hope it's not me lord kind of tone so these disciples are a strange mixture aren't they they are remarkably faithful at points and yet also remarkably frail. They serve and obey Jesus earlier in the day, and they scatter from him later in the day. And even in their own self-awareness, they're a mixed bag, hoping each in turn that they're not the betrayer, in verse 22, but later beating their chest, so to speak, with foolhardy self-confidence. They're a mixed bag, and oh, are we not like them? Sometimes we're faithful, and yet always we're fragile. Sometimes we're aware of our fragility, but often we're unaware and overconfident. How we are like these disciples. Often following through like they do in the first part of our text, and yet also often falling down like they do later on. Sometimes we see our fluctuations. Sometimes we see ourselves at the opposite ends of these pendulum swings, like the disciples here, within just a few hours of one another even. Sometimes for us it can even be within a few minutes where we're at the faithfulness end of the pendulum and then suddenly we are on the complete opposite end demonstrating in full color our fragility. We're a mixed bag in this life. Even as Christians, even with the sanctifying work of the Spirit, we are a mixed bag. But praise God we have a Savior who is not. Praise God we have a Redeemer who is always faithful and never frail in his commitment to us, in his ability to accomplish all of his work. Praise God we have a Savior who gave his body to be broken, verse 26, and his blood to be poured out, verse 28, for forgiveness of sins. Praise God that his blood was poured out for our denials of him, for our scatterings from him, for our various failures of him in all sorts of ways. Praise God we have a Savior for mixed bag disciples. 
So we've observed the disciples here in this text, but now we need to separate off one of the disciples and take a specific look now at him, at Judas, specifically. Judas. And we should notice two things here about Judas. First of all, his duplicity. His duplicity. Judas, remember, has already turned against Jesus. In fact, there are 30 coins, verse 15, 30 pieces of silver jingling in his fanny pack to prove that he's turned against Jesus. And now he's looking for a good opportunity, verse 16, to follow through on his planned betrayal. And in order to find such an opportunity, he engages in our text tonight in duplicity, in artifice. Because when this generous man in verse 18 opens his home for Jesus and his disciples to eat the Passover, and when evening comes and Jesus is reclining at the table, Judas, verse 20, is right there with the other 11. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. So Judas is there with them as though everything were normal. And yet he's there looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Verse 16, he's coiled inwardly like a snake looking for his opportunity to strike. He's watching like a hawk looking for his chance to swoop in for the kill. And then when Jesus says in verse 21, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, and then when Jesus gives a hint in verse 23 as to which one, Judas, who knows good and well that it's him, mimics the concern of the other disciples. In verse 25, surely it is not I, Rabbi. He's putting on a charade here which finally ends when Jesus pinpoints him as the betrayer at the end of verse 25. Judas is duplicitous. He's putting on a charade. And I just, I just wonder tonight if any of us are putting on a charade. I wonder if there's anybody sitting here who is pretending to spirituality and yet secretly you're living a very different life from what you profess let me point out to you that in this passage, Jesus already knows. And he already knows about you. And let me also point out to you that duplicity didn't end well for Judas. And let me urge you, instead of ending like Judas, to come out into the open and repent. And let me remind you that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we note Judas's duplicity here, but we also need to note his responsibility. His responsibility for his actions. God, verse 24, is sovereign over Judas Judas's behavior. Did you see that? Judas's actions were already written, verse 24, in God's book. 
specifically in Psalm 41. Let me read you verses 7 through 9. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down he will not rise up again. And here's Judas. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus is to be harmed according to Psalm 41, and he is to be so even by his close friend. And so you see Judas's part, verse 9 of Psalm 41, has already been written down. God is sovereign over what Judas is about to do. The Son of Man is to go, verse 24, just as it is written of him. God is sovereign over Judas' actions. But Judas, verse 24, is also responsible. Judas, this verse makes very clear, is guilty. And Judas will pay the price for his guilt, for his betrayal. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, we might ask, how can it be true that God is sovereign over Judas's betrayal, that it's written down in God's book, and yet it also be true that Judas is culpable for that betrayal, which was written in God's book? It's an age-old question that may be asked not only of Judas's sins, but of all of mankind's actions. How can it be that God works all things after the counsel of his will, as Paul says in Ephesians, yet man is still responsible for his own decisions and actions, all of which are under God's control. God works all things after the counsel of his will, all things, including your actions and mine, and yet you are responsible for your actions and I'm responsible for mine. How can that be? Well, the Bible doesn't fully untangle that knot, as far as I can tell. But it does teach that both are true. God is sovereign over all of our actions and all that takes place in this wide universe. And yet, man, you and I, are responsible for our own behaviors and our own choices. And thus, you and I are at fault for our own sins. And so it is here with Judas. Judas is responsible for his part in Jesus' murder. Judas is at fault for his actions here. And Judas, verse 24, will pay. And here's the thing, so will you and I, unless we repent and trust in Christ who paid for his people. We are without excuse God is sovereign, yes, but we are without excuse. The Bible makes that clear. Our sins are our sins. Your sins are your sins. My sins are my 
sins. I am at fault for them. I am responsible for them. And you are at fault for yours and responsible for yours. And we are responsible too to repent of them. And to flee to Christ in faith. Now God is sovereign over that too. And at the same time, we are responsible for our response to the gospel. We are responsible for our repentance and faith. And so won't you take responsibility tonight? Take responsibility for your sin. Own it. Admit it. Confess it. And take responsibility for your response to the gospel tonight. Cease from any duplicity that's in your life and turn to Christ. And... Take responsibility if your sin is of other varieties as well. To repent of it and to trust in Christ if you've never done so before. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So we've looked at the disciples. Faithful and yet frail. We've zeroed in on Judas, duplicitous and responsible for it. And now finally, let us fix our eyes in this passage on Jesus. Jesus. Notice four things. First, his foreknowledge. His foreknowledge. Jesus knows in advance, verse 21, that he's going to be betrayed. And he knows in advance, verses 23 and 25, who will do the betraying. Jesus knows the future. Why? Well, he could have deduced the fact that he was going to be betrayed and betrayed by one of his own disciples, verse 21, from Psalm 41, verse 9, right? Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But how did he know which one? Psalm 41 doesn't say which one. Which friend? Which disciple? How did Jesus know that? Well, sometimes the prophets knew the future because God revealed it to them. But here is Jesus who knows the future because he actually is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's why Jesus knows the future here. That's why he knows exactly who's going to betray him, because he's God. And it's good to know that he's God, isn't it? And it's good to know that as God, he knows what's coming down the pike in our lives too. He knows what's coming for him. He's not caught off guard by Judas's betrayal. And he knows what's coming for you, and he's not caught off guard by it either. As far as we're concerned, as far as, or not as far as we're concerned, but as far as we can see with merely human eyes, the future is very uncertain. For us, it's uncertain, but not for Jesus. Jesus will not be caught off guard by anything that comes down the corridor of your life. So is there something right now in your life that you're, you're worried about? Some future event, some future possibility, some future hope, some future fear that you're anxious about? Jesus knows the future. He will not be caught off guard and he will be there to care for you when 
the future arrives. That's number one about Jesus in this passage, his foreknowledge. Next, notice his faithfulness. His faithfulness, and I draw this from verse 32. The disciples in verse 31 are going to fall away. The disciples are going to abandon Jesus in his darkest hours. But Jesus, verse 32, is not going to abandon them. After he has been raised, he will go ahead of them to Galilee and will be waiting for them when they get there. Isn't that good to hear? Jesus doesn't wash his hands here of his frail, fickle, failing disciples. Rather, he sticks with them. And he sees his work in them through, even though they falter. He stays by their sides. And so he does with us. He's always ready to meet us again in Galilee, so to speak, after we have failed. He's always ready to forgive us. He's always ready to restore us. Always prepared to move forward with us in spite of what has happened. Always continuing to perfect the good work he began in us. So, have you failed this week? Have you been failing Jesus in this season of your life? Go meet him in his appointed Galilee, as it were. Go meet him in his gospel. Go meet him at his cross. Go meet him in his word and in prayer, and you will find him waiting for you. You will find that he's already gone ahead of you and is waiting for you. Indeed, you will find that he is the one who drew you to the meeting place, and you'll find him ready to forgive and ready to restore. He is faithful, though we are fickle. And that brings us to the third thing that we need to see here, not only his foreknowledge and his faithfulness, but his forgiveness. His forgiveness. Verses 26 through 28, while they were eating, here's the high point of this passage, by the way, the high point of this section, this visible prophecy of his broken body and his poured out blood and what it would mean, which is now for us not a visible prophecy anymore, but a visible reminder of his broken body and his blood poured out. Here's the high point of the section. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. For forgiveness of sins. That's why his body was broken. That's why his blood was poured out for forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross and endured death 
so that our sin debt might be paid and our sins, verse 28, forgiven. That's what we remember every time we take the Lord's Supper, right? That we are forgiven because of the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus. And that's our only hope, isn't it? The broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Praise God for forgiveness of sins. Jesus' foreknowledge, his faithfulness, his forgiveness. And then finally, from verse 29, his future plans. His future plans. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If we belong to Jesus, he's speaking here about a future day in the eternal kingdom when we will drink with him. There is a future and a hope and an eternal kingdom for God's people. And it's because of the faithfulness and the forgiveness of God in Christ to fragile, fickle, failing disciples. Praise God that it is so.